All right, so while I have a quiet moment in my house, which doesn't happen often, I'm going to go ahead and do a bonus podcast for those of you that are checking out this for the first time. I put one up already, but I figured it'd be cool to put a second one up so that I can have a second chance at winning people over in case the first one sucks, for lack of a better term. So for this one, I decided to do something a little different, and on Facebook, I put a call out for any questions so I could kind of do a Q&A, and I know I've had some people ask if I would do a live Q&A at some point, and yes, that's the game plan, but I figure I should get the hang of actually talking into this thing first and get this whole podcast thing down before I attempt something like that, because there is the logistics to figure out, and so far as how to get it live and how to record it correctly, because I've found that you can't just hook it up and record from your microphone. There's some software that you have to have to make sure it sounds good. So that will be in the future. I will do something live. But again, my house tends to be a zoo, and I'm a little worried about what could happen during a half-hour live uh, production of this. And so much between the dogs and my son Kale running around and everything else that it could be a debacle. So for the time being, we're just going to get the hang of it this way. I'll put some questions out on Facebook occasionally. So if anybody wants to join me on Facebook, you can find me under Tom's Big Spiders. And that's a way I'll communicate with people for the time being. And then we will work up to that. So first off, the first question is from Emmanuel Hajek, I believe is how it's pronounced. Emmanuel, if I butchered your name, I'm so sorry. I've been practicing beforehand and that's my best guess. Um, hi, Tom. Already asked you a ton of questions by private messages and you've gladly answered them all. But here is one that might fit the Q&A. How old is the oldest tarantula in your care and which one was or is it? And that's an easy one to answer. The first tarantula I ever got, uh, we call her the queen, is a Gramostola porteri. And we got her back in the 90s when my wife Billy and I first moved out. It was one of the first pets we got. I wasn't allowed tarantulas or snakes in my house. That was the one line my mom drew very clearly in the sand that we weren't allowed to cross. We couldn't have snakes because she was afraid they were going to get out in the house. And we couldn't have any spiders or tarantulas because she was highly arachnophobic. So one of the first things we did when we moved out is start buying snakes and tarantulas. And the first one was the G. Porteri. At the time, I believe she was about four inches. I ended up buying her off of a Marine who had quite an extensive exotics collection. It was a lot of fun. I went to his house. It was a smaller house in Cheshire, Connecticut. And he was actually showing me a lot of his collection. And I remember he had one venomous... uh, I believe it was a venomous snake that he opened up the container to show me and it had escaped and he just kind of went, oh, well, I'll have to find that later. And then we kept moving on. So the whole time I was there, I kept expecting to get bitten by this thing. But we bought this four inch G Porteri, which we brought home to our first apartment and I've had her ever since. I still have her. As far as the age, she was, again, good size, you know, young adult when I got her and having raised a G Porteri, wife a sling she's still a sling i've had her for about four years and she's gone from about eh, a third of an inch or so to now she's a whopping inch and a quarter in four years time so these guys glow grow at a glacial pace so we estimate that this one was probably at least 10 years old when we got it he had only had it for a couple of years and it was a wild caught specimen so you figure in Optimal conditions in somebody's collection, these guys can take several years to reach maturity. And you got to figure in the wild, there's less optimal conditions, less prey involved, uh, more fasting. So at least 10 years old, possibly 12. And we've had her now for about 21, 22 years, I believe. So she is an old, old tarantula. In fact, it was when we were discussing one day how you know sad it would actually be when this one passed because we had had her since we'd moved out. She'd been around for the birth of three of our children and everything. That's what kind of got me back into the hobby seriously was when I started looking up 
like possible, not replacements, but thinking about getting some more. So just in case when she passed, I'd have something else to uh, have in the collection. So, yep, that would be definitely the oldest by far. I have some other ones that are probably four or five, six years or so, but she's definitely the, the oldest one we have. And hopefully she continues on for a while. It's kind of staggering how long these things can live. And I know I have many people that will, you know, get frustrated because they'll buy a Gramostola species and they can take a long time to put on size. When you buy a little sling, it, when you're expecting to have a big hairy spider, it can take quite a while for it to get there. And I know people can become impatient with them, but the good thing is you're going to have this pet for a long, long time. They're almost like spiders you got to consider putting in your will. Because all joking aside, I have tarantulas here right now that could conceivably outlive me. So something to think about when you get your first tarantula, if you pick up a sling or more of the slower growing brachypelma or gramostola species, these guys live a long, long time. All right, the next one comes from Samantha Miller. She asks, I know it's a common subject, but could you go through the difference between old world and new world pre-malt size? This is an excellent question. I still struggle sometimes to recognize when my old worlds have entered pre-malt. Part of the issue is that with new worlds, with the hair kicking, they sometimes leave us with convenient bald spots that we can use as kind of a gauge to recognize when they're getting ready to malt. So for example, I have a Brachypelma bomi that when she gets ready to molt always kicks hairs. They do it as a protective measure. So even before they're ready to throw down the molting mat, someone will start kicking hairs around their enclosure, which leaves a convenient little bald spot. And when that bald spot turns black or purplish, I know that a molt is on the way. And for the majority of New World species, you can see through that bald spot whether or not they are close to molting. But there are obviously other things we can look for. One, the most obvious, I think, that is between both New World and Old World species very consistent is that they'll stop eating. With my Old World species, they are all very voracious hunters. So when I suddenly drop a roach or a cricket in or a mealworm in and they don't show any interest or they bat it away or they kind of coyly shrink in one of the corners, that's a really good sign that they are in pre-malt. I just went to feed some of my Hapactera slings yesterday, and I dropped a roach in with my one of my Hamiltoni slings, and it immediately backed away from the sling and kind of scrunched up in a corner and seemed afraid of it. And that's not normal hunting behavior from one of these guys. I've had them go from being you know startled from when I opened their enclosure to charging right across the container and grabbing a roach when they're hungry. When they're not, that's usually when they're in pre-malt. So I would say the biggest thing to look for with the old worlds is they will stop eating. Secondly, the ones that burrow will usually web up at the top of their dens. I've had that happen quite a bit. My Kilobrachy species will usually web up in the very least the entrances to their den. So if you look in and see a bunch of webbing across it, that's another good sign. And I have noticed some species will web up even when they're still eating. I think it's a natural protection against the environment if they were in nature because what it does is block the entrance from any predators or anything getting in for the time being, any insects getting in or any rain getting in. So you're looking for a thick coat of webbing. They'll usually web the snot out of it, basically making it impassable. So that's something you can look for as well. Also, I've noticed with old worlds, they do get very fat, plump abdomens, sometimes ridiculously fat and plump. 
my female uh, Harpactera poker peas gets very, very chubby. And sometimes I, I actually expect her to be in pre-molt because she's so fat, but she will continue to eat. So look for them, the booties to get really, really large. They won't necessarily get shiny on the adults, but the slings will still have that shiny appearance to them. And then finally, they become much, usually much more secretive and lethargic. So if you have an old world species that you can see out and about most times, you will notice they become a lot more laid back, slow. It, it, they almost appear to be very lethargic. So you have to kind of keep a keen eye on how they behave when they're eating. And I have a lot of them that will race around the enclosures when I open them and they get startled and they run and they sprint. And then when they're in pre-molt, they tend to slow down a great deal and they tend to hide more. So that's something to look for. So unfortunately, without the urticating hairs, it does make it a little more difficult to recognize when an old world species is in premolt. And I would even add that with the old world species, even new world arboreals can be difficult because of the fact that they're a little more difficult. Most of them don't kick the hairs and they're a little more difficult to spot when they're actually not eating. I have difficulty with those as well. But again, you have to kind of look for the more sluggish, lethargic behavior, and the biggest telltale sign is they stop eating. That's pretty much consistent across the board. So if you're dropping food in and they're not eating, give them a week, try it again. If they don't eat that time, you can probably assume they've entered pre-molt and that you have a molt coming fairly soon. And the next one up comes from Brennan Lee Basila. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Brennan. If I mispronounce it, I'm so sorry. Um, do you intend to do another communal? If so, which species and why? Yes, I actually do. My dream communal right now would be with the chicken spider, Aranio pollito. Uh, it's a pamphibedius species, and they are quite large, quite beautiful. And I just got two females recently from Jamie's Tarantulas. I've been looking for these guys for years. I'd seen them on the YouTube channel, Mark's Tarantulas. He's got a great channel, and I'd been admiring his for quite some time, and I finally got some. This is a species that has been observed several times in the wild, living communally, with larger adult specimens, smaller specimens, all seemingly getting along very, very well. And obviously, I have the M. Balfoury communal, which I'll talk about a little more when I address another question in a minute, which has been the highlight of my tarantula-keeping, quote-unquote, career. It, they're just so fascinating to watch. And these are, you know, medium-sized tarantulas. I can't even fathom what it would look like to have a giant tank with eight to nine-inch spiders all getting along and exhibiting some of those same behaviors. So... That would definitely be something I would look forward to doing in the future. My goal is to breed these females, and when I do, to take some of the slings and raise them together. Hopefully, all goes well. Again, although I've seen some amazing behavior from the embalfries, and I know that some species are said to be communal, there is always a risk involved, and I would hate to have any casualties. But from what I've heard from a few different people, and I got contacted by somebody on YouTube who had actually spent time seeing these guys in the wild, they had basically discovered them years ago and seen them in the wild taking photos and pictures of them. They said they all seem to be living together in a group very peaceably. So 
that would definitely be a species I would love to keep communally in the future. It's going to be a ways down the line. I think my largest female right now is about four inches, so she's got a ways to go until she would be breedable. And then, of course, I'm going to have to locate a male and breed them. So it's, it's going to be a couple of years down the line, but that is definitely something I would love to see. Talk about a centerpiece of a collection. And again, I'd love to document it much like I did the M. Balfouri communal because I think a lot of people are scared to try the communals because we are taught from day one that tarantulas are very cannibalistic. They don't tolerate other tarantulas. And to see them actually get along well is reassuring and gives people kind of the confidence to go ahead and try their own. I know a lot of people have been trying the M. Balfouri communals. I'm not the first person to do it by far, so I can't lay claim to that. I just think that I documented it month by month to show people exactly what they might expect with them. So, yep, I definitely have to go with the chicken spider or Pamphlobedius arano polito as my next communal. Might be a ways down the road, but definitely be doing one of those. And for the next question comes from my buddy, Eddie Marquis, who thanks again, Eddie, for all the support over the years. Eddie's been following my blog and my YouTube channel for quite some time, so it's always good to see him chime in. If you could see any tarantula in its natural habitat, which would you choose and why? And Daniel Edwards seemed to agree that he wanted to hear this one answered. Yes, environment question would be cool. If you could do a field trip, where would you go and what would you search for? Now, again, I need to make it very clear. I barely leave the house. I'm like a hermit. Um, there's a pet store I've been meaning to visit for quite some time. That's only like an hour and a half away, and I'm too lazy to drive up there. But we do talk about sometimes like how cool it would be to see certain species in their natural habitat. And I think this one's a really easy one to answer. And the why isn't very easy one to answer. It would be the Monocentropus Balfouri. I would love to see them in their natural environment. They come from Socotra Island which is a place with a lot of cool plant life. Um, I believe it's got 100, 700 endemic species. And mostly I'd like to see them in the wild because I have, for people that don't know or maybe haven't seen my channel or read my blogs, I do have an M. Balfouri communal setup with nine M. Balfouri that I began as tiny slings. They are now young adults with one mature male. And... I post a lot of information up to kind of show people that, yes, this is a quote-unquote true communal species. There are some species that will do okay in communals if certain conditions are met. So, for example, you can't give them too much room because if they stake out their own territory, their cannibalistic attributes can come out. Or you have to start with all slings from the same sack and the same size. The M. Balfouri seem to be a species that's truly communal where people have luck with them no matter what size they're putting together or how much space you give them. So I wanted to basically document this when I got my communal to kind of reassure people that they are actually a communal species. They don't just get along with each other or tolerate each other, that they actually thrive and benefit from being kept in groups. And I think I've pretty much proven this, that at least in captivity, they seem to be a species that can do this, at least in my instance. However, I know people have brought this up on arachnoboards, and there's a couple people that have jumped in to say you can't call them a truly communal species yet because this behavior hasn't been observed in the wild. And all right, we'll run with that. I, I would find it hard to believe that a species that's just introduced into the hobby not all that long ago would suddenly have some type of genetic trigger that caused it to suddenly be able to live communally. It just doesn't makes sense to me. This seems like a behavior that probably would take place in the wild and then takes place in captivity. But it's a good point that we haven't seen them in the wild yet. This hasn't been 
documented in the wild, and that would be an amazing opportunity if we were able to go observe them and catch some of this behavior to be able to prove once and for all that they are truly communal in the wild. And again, I've seen things with my communal setup that I just never expected to see, even just some of the what appears to be social behavior when they tap each other, or there's even been some speculation that there could be a pecking order. I know it's thought that most insects and arachnids don't have a pecking order or anything like that, but there there seems to be some almost dominant behavior where one of them kind of taps the other one and moves it out of the way, and the other one moves out of the way. There's no fighting. I've even seen them, two of them go after the same prey item, and instead of harming each other, one of them gets the prey item, the other one moves on away. So I've seen a lot of evidence that not only shows that they can get along, but they actually thrive in this environment. So that would be really amazing to see in their natural habitat, to be able to document it and to show proof to the entire community that this isn't just something that happens in captivity, that this spider suddenly abandons any of its cannibalistic traits and decides it's going to live better with other members of its own species, which again, it's Kind of silly to think it would just happen in captivity, but it's a very valid point that we haven't yet observed it in the wild. So that would be the species that I would definitely want to see. Um, It's very, very hot there, which I'm not a big fan of the heat, but apparently very, very dry doesn't get above usually the 20s as far as humidity, so I can take it. But obviously, I don't know if I will ever get there. I think that's probably unrealistic, but it would sure be cool to think about and imagine what it would be like to actually bring back footage of these guys living in the natural environment, maybe curled up in some of those dragon blood, dragon's blood trees, and be able to bring it back and show the community at large that, yes, they are actually communal in the wild. Okay, and this one might be a long one. We have a question here from Christine Tarkowski. Uh, Can you talk about nematodes? What are they? How do tarantulas get them? And what can we do for them if they do? These guys are like one of the boogeymen in the hobby. When I first got into the hobby years ago, I was in constant fear of my spiders getting nematodes. I'm, I'm almost reluctant to address this because I haven't heard a lot of talk about them lately. A few years ago, it was like every, all anybody ever talked about was nematodes. And it was like every time you turned around, somebody thought they had a tarantula that had nematodes. So first off, what are nematodes? They're basically parasitic roundworms that tarantulas can become infested with. And bad infestation generally leads to death. Some of the signs of them are excessive drinking or hanging around the water dishes, white, thick, crusty, mucusy stuff around the mouth parts. Um, people have talked about a sweet smell when the, the tarantula is infested. One of these, supposedly, there is a very distinct sweet smell coming from the enclosure and the tarantula drooling down the front of the tarantula because what happens is they infest the area around the mouth parts and we're not talking about a tarantula that's cleaning itself sometimes they will use the for lack of a better term saliva i'm sure somebody will chime in with the scientific term to clean themselves we're talking about a, a mess and if you look up photos of nematode infestations online like if you google it you'll see some pictures of what to look for and it's pretty distinct and then one of the later signs of it which are a little frightening is the palps become curled up underneath them and basically become paralyzed they're not able to use them which means they are not able to hunt because they use the pedipalps to grab food items and they basically are not able to eat so this is one of the biggest sign that people look for is the stuff around the mouth parts now one thing to be careful of tarantulas sadly have been known to 
kind of get their own, they eat their own feces. I've seen it myself with, I've had an avicularia one morning that I was getting ready for work. And I, a lot of times I go around in the morning with a flashlight because I catch a lot of my guys out and there was white stuff around its mouth and I immediately panicked. But what had happened is it had pooed on the side of the enclosure and I don't know whether it was getting moisture out of the poo or what, but it had it caked around its mouth and yep, gross, but that is not a sign of nematodes. When you see the nematodes, it is almost like a cottage cheesy consistency. And if you take a Q-tip, if you're able to take a Q-tip or cotton swab or whatever everybody's calling them, dip it in this stuff and then put it in alcohol and look with a magnifying glass, what you will see is these tiny little worms in it. And generally speaking, what they think happens is these worms infest the tarantula. They try to get through the mouth parts, but they get in through the book lungs and the anus and overwhelm it and it eventually dies. So, what are some possible causes of it? Well, these are generally parasites that come from wild-caught specimens. Most of the time when you hear somebody say they have an animal infested with them, it was a wild-caught specimen. It was a lot more prevalent in the hobby several years ago, I think, because there were more wild-caught specimens available, especially if you go to a pet store. I've heard of people saying that they've been to pet stores and seen ones that had infestations. So that is one thing to think of when you get an animal that you're not sure if it was wild-caught. And again, I try to avoid wild-caught animals now. The majority of them are being bred, if not in the United States. We import them from Europe, so try to get captive-bred specimens. But if you do have a wild-caught specimen, you probably want to quarantine it for a bit, observe it, make sure it doesn't have any of this stuff. I like to stick them in a shelf by themselves for a little while and just give them some time so I can observe, make sure none of these signs show themselves. Um, But other possible ideas surrounding where these nematodes come from, one is substrate taken from outside. There are obviously good nematodes that are in dirt and substrate that people might grab, but there has been speculation that people that take dirt from outside could be unwittingly bringing these in and infesting the spider that way. So, I won't get into the whole argument. There's still a big debate about whether you should use substrate from outside or not. I know a lot of people overseas do it with no problem. Uh, things I worry about is parasites and any type of somebody sprayed pesticides or things of that nature. You'd never know. And then whether or not you should sterilize the substrate before you use it. There's another big argument over some people like absolutely throw it in the microwave, bake it, kill anything that's in it. And other people say it's useless because it just gets contaminated again. I'm not opening that up right now, but it is thought that they could possibly come in from unsterilized substrate. Another thought process uh, is that they come in from feeder animals like crickets mostly. Uh, this this would be a bad one because a lot of us use crickets and you would like to think that the people that sell them know that their crickets are nematode free. Again, it's speculation. And again, I have to point to this, the nematodes being kind of a boogeyman, meaning people kind of blow it up. I think sometimes out of proportion, it creates a lot of fear, but there aren't a lot of answers to the questions we have. So again, a lot of this is speculation, but they have been seen in, I know, hissing cockroaches. People have seen them infested in those. So it is a possibility that they could come in on infected feeder insects. You feed them to your tarantula and it becomes infected that way. And then a lot of times when you hear folks talking about the nematodes, what comes up is forward flies. And there's, again, speculation that they could possibly hitch a ride on forward flies. They kind of buzz around. They can go in and out of enclosures. And anybody that's had them knows they can you know, start with feeder insects. Or if you forget to remove boluses or dead prey from a tarantula enclosure, you can get these guys. And one of the ideas was that they get infected and then transfer them over to uninfected tarantulas. And 
this was, I believe, one keeper that had a wild-caught specimen that showed signs of having nematodes. And after that specimen passed away, I believe he might have euthanized it, he noticed that it showed up in a couple of his captive bred ones that shouldn't have displayed any of these signs because they hadn't been anywhere near this thing. And his thought was that he had seen forward flies around his collection and they possibly could have been brought over. But again, nematodes is something that we don't completely understand. We do figure that they probably, the majority of them come from wild caught specimens. It's something that they have to put up with in the wild. And obviously it makes sense that they could be transferred over to healthy um, captive bred adults, whether you're using, you know, container, if you're not sterilizing containers and you're putting other spiders in there, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not you should throw away substrate. If you're keeping a lot of tarantulas in close proximity, I guess it's possible that if you had flies or gnats, they could hitch rides over. I'm not sure how the whole thing works, but that's the general theory. And again, you don't hear about this very often, and I don't think it's prevalent, but because tarantulas are so unexpressive and because we really don't know about them, a lot about them medically and some of the biological aspects of them, that when they get sick, we're just kind of left to guess what killed them. So like DKS is a great example. For a while, everybody treated it like it was just a disease unto itself, like having a heart attack. But it's actually symptoms of, it could be symptoms of a lot of different things, including being poisoned by pesticides, chemicals, you thought that, you know, molds could cause it or some fungi. There's a lot of different things that can cause DKS. And I think with nematodes, people freak out because they hear, and again, it's scary and it can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's just not as prevalent as people seem to think. The idea of these parasites infesting and killing an entire collection is pretty horrifying to most keepers. Now, there is an article, and I'm going to put a link to it in the description of this podcast. It's called Nematode Worms by Guy Tansley. And after doing a lot of research on forums and reading about people's experience with them, he did write a pretty interesting paper where he comes up with an idea of how to get rid of them and, again, talks about some of this information. As far as killing them, there's certain chemicals that you can supposedly use. I know on one forum, uh, I believe it was a gentleman from Russia, said there were a couple... Um, medications over there that are over the counter that you could mix together and use to clean the tarantula out and get rid of the nematodes and they had success with it and I will try to link to that as well in the description but I do think somebody came forward and said that in the U.S. these would be prescription drugs so that's going to be an issue over here. I did hear an instance of somebody that treated them using basically salt water. They filled a syringe with salt water and, and they basically grabbed the tarantula, held the tarantula, cleaned out the mouth parts with the salt water, and after doing this a couple times, it killed the nematodes and they went away. Uh, that would be something that would make sense because the salt would probably dry out the nematodes and allow the tarantula to basically get rid of them. Just keep in mind you got to be careful with that because salt can be hazardous to tarantulas. But that seems to be the one that is most doable for the majority of hobbyists without having to go out and try to find medication, either Walmart or try to get a prescription for one, which you're not going to be able to do. The salt water seems to work well. Now, that's going to be a tough one if you have an old world species. I'm thinking like something like P. Solitheria, trying to pinch grab a pokey to do this is going to be very difficult. So obviously, it's, it's going to be tricky to treat them if you end up having one that shows these signs. Just be very, very careful. So again, uh, little worms, nasty little guys. I 
unfortunately, this isn't a video, so I can't really show pictures of them, but I would encourage people that if you're interested, hop online, look up some pictures of what to look, look at. The biggest sign, the most obvious one, is the the drooling and that stuff around the mouth. It looks really nasty. And if you have any doubt whether or not it's feces or not, you can always swab it, drop it in some alcohol, see if you get the little worms. But again, just practice good husbandry. If you find that you have what you believe is a wild-caught specimen, keep it by itself, quarantine it for a little while. We used to do this when we got snakes. You do the same thing. You keep them away from the other ones so they don't transfer it over. Keep an eye on them. Make sure it doesn't show any signs. If you have an animal that you think is showing signs of them, again, quarantine it. Get it away from the rest of your collection. Don't leave it sitting next to you know your prized P. metallic or something else. Get it out of the room, into a different room, into a spot where you can monitor it. And then it sounds like the the best way to treat them at this point would be a mixture of salt and water in a syringe to try to clean the mouth parts out, get rid of the nematodes. And again, I believe this guy was pretty successful doing this, but there's not a lot out there on it. So if anybody finds any good links of people that dealt with it, please feel free to comment so the other people can share from your experience. But again, just keep a good eye out. Don't mix substrates. Don't when you get an animal and you transfer it, throw away that dirt, that substrate clean it out completely, clean out the water dish and disinfect it and try not to mix that kind of stuff. Cause again, that's one of the ways it could be spread and just be careful if you're taking dirt from outside to make sure that it's, you know, clean. And as far as feeder insects, when you get your feeder insects, just give them a good look over, make sure none of them look ill. I've, I've had really good luck buying crickets for quite some time. I mean, again, if people were to end up having nematodes in their crickets, some of these big dealers, it would completely kill their business. So I think it kind of behooves them to make sure that doesn't happen. But again, not very common and not something most keepers are going to thankfully have to deal with. All right, so great questions for everybody. Thanks so much for everybody that uh, volunteered to ask a question on Facebook. I really appreciate it. It gives me a little something to talk about. And sometimes I have some good ideas, but it's neat to hear from people and find out what they want to hear about. Hopefully I answered them adequately. And if there are any questions, again, the one issue I have with this format is I, if I misspeak, I'm not allowed to make notes or anything. It's not like YouTube video where I love to throw in text to clarify or explain points or to fix areas where I might have slipped up and said something wrong. So I will be using the comment section on my blog and obviously Facebook when I post these up. So hopefully folks will comment and if they have any questions, I can answer them there because the last thing I want to do is create more confusion or misspeak and say the wrong thing. So I hope that we can do these again in the future. This is kind of fun for me and it gets me thinking about things in a way I haven't in a while. Like, for example, the old world pre-mold signs, that's something I still struggle with and nematodes, something that... Again, doesn't happen very often, but something people should be aware of. I think they were all fantastic questions, so we'll definitely do this again at some point. Again, I will be releasing the podcast now. Looks like it'll be Sunday, so that way people can listen on the way to work or whatever. Of course, this first one's being on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm guessing that was probably not very bright of me to release them then, but we're going to go for it anyway. And they will remain half hour weekly for the time being maybe we'll do longer episodes every once in a while and the goal is to build up and get some people in here for interviews and have it not just be me talking the whole time so again for those interested you can find me on youtube under tom's big spiders i think if you search that it comes my channel comes up pretty quick you can find my blog at www.tomsbigspiders.com we have a lot of information on there or you can always email me at tomsbigspiders at outlook.com. God, I hate Outlook, but I've already got so many thing, uh, emails in this, I don't want to transfer it over. But feel free to shoot me an email. I try to get back to people as soon as possible. But do keep in mind that I do get a lot of correspondence between all the different 
online formats I'm on between Facebook messages, um, Tumblr, um, Instagram, my blog, just a lot of messages. So it could take me a couple days, but usually if there's something that's an emergency, put emergency in the subject line. So I'll try to get to it, have it skip the line and answer it as quickly as possible. So I hope you enjoyed this and the other one. I hope you guys will join me again next week. These have been kind of fun and we can keep this thing going. <laughs>